Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, good evening. Delighted to be with you tonight. And uh, remember being here last year. Uh, Remember the lesson was on the family, and I enjoyed presenting that. And I've looked forward to being back. And I appreciate the invitation that's been given to me to be here. And I appreciate it very much. Paul's been is always right on the on on the uh, task at hand and taking care of me. And I really do appreciate that his hospitality, him and his good wife. Thank you, brother, for the prayer. I didn't see where you landed. There he is. Thank you so much for that. And I solicit your prayers for this. experience tomorrow. It's uh, pretty significant involving hardware and screws and so forth and so on. And I had it back in 06 and and I said, well, um, to what, how extensive is it? He says it's about as twice as much as I had in 06. So but, um, I was not too encouraged by that, to be honest about it. <laughs> but I am encouraged that there are people who uh, know what they're doing and can help us to do better. I um, This coming Christmas Eve is going to be a big anniversary for me, Glenn. I'll be preaching 56 years Christmas Eve. And the Lord's opened up a lot of doors for me over the years. And <clears throat> next year is looking better because I'm going to do 10 meetings next year instead of 18 this year. And uh, that's good news for me uh, because... The, uh, the road is not as adventurous as it used to be, especially then when you do six in a row and then you have a week off and do five in a row. Uh, that might say something to you about my rather dumb judgment about things. But I tell you, I love the Word of God, and I love preaching the Word, and I love um, trying to do what I can to enhance the borders of the kingdom. So your prayers will be greatly appreciated. Okay. Um, my wife is here tonight, um, Ms. Light. She's sitting there at the back. We're expecting another phone call about some other things to take care of for tomorrow's activity. So um, she might have to get up. And then, of course, my good friend Peggy Coulter uh, from Mississippi, who does not know how to say Mississippi. Um, she's, she's, uh, she's actually from Matheston in the Sticks. I was from North Mississippi. We're rather kind of fancy up there. and uh, But she tries to be fancy. I'm going to pick on you, Peggy. You know that. Because tonight she was talking about something from Mississippi. Uh, who ever heard of that, Mississippi? Doesn't that sound kind of sissy? I say say it like you're supposed to say it. Mississippi. Anyway. Well, Peggy's been a good friend ever since college, and I love her and appreciate her work. And you, James, over here, the good work that you do and how challenged you are with, you know. (laughs) But anyway. Okay. uh, All right. Now, you got your Bibles. Let's let's get to studying the Word. You got them? 
May I see them? You know, this is a clue. If I go up, okay, good. And I remember you young people over here, how well y'all listened last year. You going to do the same this year? Okay, don't be talking, carrying on. I've, I've had to call people out once before. I don't want to call out a stranger, okay? No, I know I won't have to do that. But I do. I, it, look, did y'all see this over here? Is that not a good-looking group of kids? It's good to see Glenn and Cindy. Uh, appreciate the good work that y'all are all involved in. All right, so we've got about uh, 25 minutes. Let's see what we can do. <clears throat> I want to begin by telling you a little story. And the story is uh, about uh, some men who really like to fish. Now, last time I went fishing was New Year's Day, 1972. And I was freezing to death, and I was trying to set up a Bible study with a man. And I was unsuccessful, and it was sleeting, and I said, I want to go to the house. <laughs> so, but at any rate, uh, so I don't care about that too much. Some of you do, though. So here's uh, some men that like to fish. And so they got so carried away with what they like to do that they said, we ought to have a workshop on fishing. They said, that's a great idea. And so they had this workshop and they had all kinds of lessons about when to fish, how to fish, how deep to fish, what kind of fish to fish for, and so forth and so on. Well, a young man who attended the workshop was so carried away with some of the lessons that he heard that he left and he went fishing. And guess what happened? He caught a fish. All the workshop directors were so uh, excited because they had this workshop and this young man came and and he took it to heart and caught this fish. And they were so excited about it that the uh, next time they had another workshop, they invited him to come and bring his fish. It was not that big of a fish, but he was so proud of it, he had it mounted. And they said, we want you to come and tell us your story. So he brought his fish and he told his story. He told about when he was fishing, how he was fishing, what kind of you know, uh, fish bait he was using, and et cetera, et cetera. And so people were so carried away with his story that they invited him to go to another place with his fish and tell the story. Do you know what happened to that young man? He never, ever caught another fish. Do you know why? Because he was telling everybody about his fish. And Glenn, he didn't catch any more fish. And I wonder if that's not a similar situation that we have when it comes to the subject of evangelism. You know, we talk a whole lot about it, but do we evangelize? You see, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to talk about it all the time if we're not evangelizing. Let me tell you how I think it works frequently. Here's a group of elders, and they're going to say, they're talking about what theme to have for the next year, and the theme's going to be something like church growth, okay? Everybody with me now? You follow me? And so, they announce that to the congregation, and they actually appoint a committee to study church growth. And then, and they allocate a large part of their budget for the study of church growth. And they tell this committee, we want you to go far and wide and visit church after church and read all kinds of materials and so forth and come back and give us a report on what you have learned. We're going to give you six months to do that. Well, they come back. They present their findings to the eldership. Now, here's what the eldership does. 
they take it and they say, well, we're going to look at it and tweak it and so forth. And we're going to spend three months doing that. And then we're going to present it to the congregation and we're going to give them three months, you know, to evaluate it and get their input and so forth and so on. For the love of Mike, we got a year that's gone by and we hadn't caught a fish. You see what I'm saying? And I, what I want to do tonight <coughs> is share some thoughts with you that's not going to take a large part of your budget. You don't have to spend a year thinking about it. It's simple. It's what the early church did. And it worked for them. And if it worked for the early church, what do you think? People are people. We've been the same ever since Adam and Eve. It'll work for us today. Listen, the early church was a very aggressive body of people. Did you know that? Very aggressive. (coughs) Pardon me. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 6 that they turned the world upside down. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 22, they were the sect everywhere spoken against. According to Colossians 1 and 23, the gospel went to the whole known world. Even the pagans paid attention. Tacitus, a Roman historian, spoke of the church as an immense multitude. Suetonius, another historian, spoke of the church as a dangerous sect of people. You see, the early church made an impact on the people of the day. Everybody was talking about the way. You know, people are going to be talking about something today, right? I mean, every day. during the time of the early church, people were talking about the church. How much do people talk about us today? Are we making enough noise for people to be talking about the church today? They talked about the early church. They that gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were baptized. Verse 47 of Acts 2, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. In Acts 4 and 4, the number of the male members is about 5,000. In uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, the word of God is increasing. A number of the disciples are multiplying and a great company of the priests are obeying the gospel. And then in Acts 16 and 5, the churches are being established in the faith and they're increasing in number daily. So the early church grew. Now, what are some things that they did that caused them to grow? If we can discover some things that they did, then we can implement those kinds of things today We might have to repackage it or something a little differently, but we can implement the same in principle and we can reach lost people today. Amen? It's weak, but I'll take it. One of the things the early church did was this. They stood for something. Isn't, Isn't there a country song, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything? If there's not, ought to be one, right? I mean, that just sounds good, right? They stood for something. I read a book back in the 70s. Glenn, you and Paul, y'all probably read the same book. It was authored by a man by the name of Dean Kelly, and the title of the book was Why Conservative Churches Grow. And among other things, he said it's because they are exclusive and uncompromising. I believe that that's still true today. 
You know, the thought for many today is the more progressive we can become and so forth, you know, the more we will grow. Well, I don't find that to be true among some of the most conservative religious groups in the world today. And I don't believe that that has to be the case in order for the Lord's church to grow. But the early church stood for something. They hated every false way according to Psalm 119 verse 104 like the psalmist did. They loved the truth. They preached the truth. They believed that it was the truth that would make us free. That's what our Lord said, right? John 8 and, and 32. So they, they loved the truth. They preached the truth. And they preached the truth in spite of the fact that some people would not like it. Now, let me quickly add this. <clears throat> that does not mean, are you with me now? That does not mean that we have to be ugly in our presentation of the truth. Glenn, I went to school with a fellow one time, and <clears throat> we just young men, and I said, I said to him, I said, well, how's your work going? He said, well, I'm slaying them hip and thigh. And I thought, now what does that mean? You know, I left there and I thought, would I want to go to his congregation? You know, find that the goal of the preacher is to slay me hip and thigh? I mean, that doesn't sound too, I mean, that doesn't sound like that would lift me up in the body of Christ. That was his goal. Well, that's not my goal. I want to tell people the truth. I want to tell them the gospel. And I want them to hear me having a heavy heart when I, when I share the message that people without Christ are lost. I had a man tell me something, one of the best things that was ever told me in a parking lot at the Beach Hill Church of Christ in Ripley, Mississippi in the summer of 1975. He said, David, it sounded like in that sermon that you cared about people. Made me madder and fire that he said that to me. I said, what do you mean? I said, I care about people. He said, well, it doesn't sound like it. And Glenn, it caused me to, to re-examine myself. And I looked over my lessons, and it was not the content of my lessons as much as it was the way I was communicating the message. And people did not perceive that I cared anything about them. And so I don't care how smart a preacher is or how intellectual or whatever you know he can be, be, if he does not communicate that message where people's hearts are touched and they sense that he cares for them, I'm telling you that man is a failure in trying to tell the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. We got to stand for something. But we got to be sure to stand for something, maintaining the spirit that Christ would have us to maintain. Oh, there's a whole lesson I could do on that, but we don't, we don't have the time. Number two. <clears throat> well, let me back up. I'm going to have to add this one point on that. If we're going to stand for something, that means that we must expect our people to be different than the world. Now, when I say different, I don't mean to be weird looking or anything like that. But I mean that our speeches, we expect our people, we expect our young people, we expect all of our people to have good behavior. We expect them to have good words, you know, that come out of their mouths, out of our mouths, right? 
We expect that in our people. We need to send the message that we live in a world of sin. We're surrounded by sin. We're surrounded by worldly people. But we're not going to have any part in it. We're going to be different than that. And we're going to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Got to preach it. We got to live it. Number two. I think another thing that the early church did was um, they had a burning passion for souls. Do you have a passion for something? You know, a passion, if you have a passion for something, that's what causes you to lie awake at night and you're thinking about it. You can't get it off your mind. That's what, when you have a passion for something, you wake up in the middle of the night and you start thinking about it and you can't go back to sleep. A passion. You see, the church had a passion for souls. They, they learned that from the Lord Jesus. You remember the disciples in John chapter 2 and verse 17, after the Lord had cleansed the temple, they said, they remembered the passage, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. So they got that from Jesus, you see. He had a passion. He was not going to have his father's house treated the way, you know, that it was being treated. He had a passion. Now Jesus is our example, is that right? 1 Peter 2 and 21, here and 2 were you called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us what? An example that we should follow in His steps. Well, what was His example? My food is to do the will of Him who sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. So Jesus, you know, said His life was about work. Working for His Father. You know, working to bring the message of good news to a lost um, and doomed mankind. You know, without the gospel that He came to bring us. And so they had a passion for souls. Jesus passed this passion, passion down to others. The one I think of who I think, in my opinion as far as the record is concerned, was the most passionate for the gospel other than our Lord Jesus was the Apostle Paul. You know, in Romans 10 and 1, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. That's what he prayed for. That's what his heart's desire was. Now, a stronger comment, I think, is Romans 9 and 3, where he said that he would be willing to be cursed himself if his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would in essence believe and obey the gospel. Now you think about what he said there. Did you hear it? He'd be willing to be cursed himself. You know, Brother Glenn, I think what Paul was saying there is that he'd be willing to lose his own soul if his kinsmen, according to the gospel, would believe and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you, brethren, I'm not there yet myself. I mean, if the trumpets start blowing, I want to be in the line. How about you? But Paul said, I don't count my life dear to myself, Acts 20 and 24. You know, in Acts 21, when they came to uh, Philip's house, remember that, where Philip had the four daughters? <clears throat> then you remember that Agabus the prophet, you know, came came down and, and Agabus took Paul's belt 
And he bound himself with it. And he said, the owner of this belt, if he goes to Jerusalem, is going to be bound and cast into the hands of the Gentiles. Oh, when the brethren heard that, they started squalling and carrying on something awful. Oh, Brother Paul, please don't go. We don't want you to go. You know, the Agabus has told us you're going to be bound and cast into the hands of the Gentiles. Don't go, Brother Paul. Please don't go. You know, some, pre- some people would like that kind of attention. Do you know it? Not Paul. You know what he said in verse 13, Acts 21? He said, what do you mean weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound at Jerusalem, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul was saying, the very fact that y'all don't want me to accomplish my mission is breaking my heart. Don't stand between me and my mission. That helps me understand what the Lord said to Peter. You remember when Peter said, get behind me, Satan? You remember the context? Remember what Peter said? Peter said, you're not going to die. Oh no, you'll not die. Get behind me, devil. Why did he say that? Why did he call Peter the devil? Because Peter was standing between Jesus and his mission. Why did Jesus come to this earth? He came to this earth to die for me and to die for you. That's why he came. And now here's Peter trying to interrupt that mission. So, The early church had passion. Souls are valuable. Do you believe that? We talk about things losing their value today. Let me tell you what's not lost its value. That's souls. They're just as valuable today as they've been, you know, throughout, you know, the ages. What does the Bible say? If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For what? You remember what it says? For whosoever shall lose his life for my sake... Shall find it. Remember that? Whosoever shall lose their life for my sake shall find it. What is a man profited? Watch it. If he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. So you could have all the diamonds in Africa. You can have all the oil that could be found in, you know, throughout this world. You can accumulate all of the material possessions that you can accumulate and lose your soul and you have gained nothing and you have lost everything. Souls are valuable. So how do you look at people now? How do you see people? Do you see them rich or poor, cultured or uncultured, educated or uneducated? How do you see people? We better see people in the image of God who when they take their last breath, they're going to spend eternity with God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the redeemed of all the ages, or they're going to go to hell with the devil and his angels. Now that's long and short of it. Am I right about that? There are but two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of whom? Satan. Well, I, well, now, wait a minute, Brother Light. Uh, I'm not in the kingdom of God. I hadn't confessed my faith and repented and been baptized. But, but you know, I, I mean, I'm a good guy. I mean, I tip my hat to people and I say, yes, ma'am. And, and I hold the door open for the ladies and so forth. I'm in that uh, 
um, I'm, just a, I'm just a good old boy. I'm in that kingdom. Listen to me. I've read this book countless times. You've done the same thing. Anybody in here seen the kingdom of the good old boys? Anybody found that? I hadn't found it. I find the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And if you're an accountable person, you're going to be in one of the two. That's what the Bible teaches. Number three, the early church, I think, was successful in evangelism because they had a, an incredible sense of urgency about themselves. See, I think the way I've organized this, I've put urgency after my point about passion because I think urgency grows out of passion. See, if you have a passion for something, let's say, uh, oh, what's your hobby? Uh, let's say, uh, I used to know a guy in Mississippi, he collected cut glass. Cut glass. Uh, I think that Ms. Light and I have one piece and I think Sister Patsy Loden gave that to us. You know what that is. I mean, that's not just some stuff that comes out of a mold, okay? It's pretty snazzy stuff, okay? Well, I know this fellow, he had a punch bowl. I mean, a punch bowl out of cut glass. That thing stood about that high, and so, and he was always looking for this special piece. So suppose he tells all the dealers, you know, I'm looking for this piece. Let me know if you find it. And several years go by, and then he gets a phone call one day and says, you know that piece of cut glass you've been looking for for the last 15 years? Yes, I've got it. And it's for sale. I'm at the store right now. You can come, you know, pick it up. Well, I wish I really could, but got these hot dogs going here. Going to put on a couple hamburgers here in a minute. Doesn't look like I could get there today. What? Have you lost your mind completely? You know what he'd do? He'd just let the dogs, uh, hamburgers, everything burn up. He's not going to tell anybody anything. He's just going to leave the fire, let it all be consumed. What's he going to do? He's going to go get that piece of cut glass. You see what I'm saying? Why? Because he has a passion. And now, he, now he's found it, and now he has his sense of urgency. You follow me? Okay, so what's my point with that crazy illustration? Here's my point. The Lord's work requires haste. Where is it, uh, Glenn? I think it was, is it Abimelech or Ahimelech, or I forget, one of those hemlock boys. But at any rate, First Samuel, is it 21.8 maybe? Where the Bible says the king's business requires haste. Don't hold me to that, but I think that's where it is. The king's business requires haste. Now he was talking about an earthly king. But here's my point. If an earthly king's business... This looks so lonely out here to me. See, it doesn't seem to be too productive. Over, I don't know, whatever. But anyway... Uh, If an earthly king's business requires haste, what about the heavenly king? What about the creator and the sustainer of the universe? What about that king? You think his business requires haste? Of course it does. 
<clears throat> Ms. Life and I have, have three daughters. And uh, we wanted a son. Um, we're grateful for what we have, but, and maybe it was more me. I mean, all my daddy's, my daddy, I'm the only son, and my daddy's brothers had one son, and I'm thinking, well, I ought to be do that too, but it didn't happen. Okay? Didn't, didn't happen. But, you know what? If I had the news of that, if I had the news of that, I wouldn't tarry about anything. I'd be putting that on the calendar, wouldn't I? You see what I'm saying? That'd be good news, you know, for me. And if I'd have had a boy, you know what his name would have been? It would have been, if Ms. Light would have agreed, it would have been either Caleb or Joshua. You know why? Because I love those two guys. Now, if you study Numbers 1 and Numbers 2, you'll find that the number of the people who uh, uh, were counted at that time, the number of the men, let me back up, the number of the men over the age of 20 and able to do battle, okay? Now, that means if you're under 20, you don't, you're not included. And if you're over 20 but not able to do battle, see, that leaves out all the knee replacement people and all the back problem people because they can't do battle. But you know what that number was? 603,550. You know how many made it in the promised land? Two. And why did they make it? The Bible says they had a different spirit and they wholly followed the Lord. They wholly followed the Lord. Oh, you remember the story, don't you? You know how the spies came back? And oh, they were bragging about the land. They said, guys, listen, this land is something. I mean, it's great. <clears throat> they said, look at this cluster of grapes we brought back. I mean, it. We had, to sus- we had to suspend this cluster of grapes on a pole that had to be carried by two men. We hadn't seen anything like that in any- Kroger store anywhere. I mean, look at that thing. Boy, it's big. And then they said, but you know what? We saw the giants. And we looked like grasshoppers to them. And more we looked at ourselves, we kind of looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We can't take that land. It's wonderful, but we can't do it. And right after that, look it up for yourself, Numbers 13, verse 30. The Bible says that Caleb said, don't you love this guy? Let us go up at once and possess it. He was not going to let those boys pour cold water on God's plan and let it bother him at all. He had a different spirit. He had a spirit of urgency. You know, everybody's going to do something sometime, right? I was preaching in, uh, I think I was at Fredonia Congregation in Manchester, Tennessee. And this sweet sister came out. I'd said something about, you know, tomorrow never comes, today's yesterday's tomorrow, something like that, and some lesson I was doing. And she came up to me and she said, and, it, and I never will forget it because it just meant so much to me. She said, Brother Light, she said, there are seven days in a week 
and someday ain't one of them. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? That's the truth. It's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Not a someday. It's not in there, right? And so we have to have a spirit of urgency for the Lord today. Number four. The early church believed that every person, watch it now, every person could do something for the Lord. Every person could do something for the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are the two classic passages on um, the members of the body of Christ. What I love about Romans, Paul mentioned some, some miraculous gifts that we know have ceased, but some, you know, have not ceased. But at any rate, the thing that I like about what Paul says in the book of Romans is this <clears throat> concerning the members, the, namely the gifts. He says, let us use them. That to me is the classic verse. Let us use them. Because, see, here's the thing. Everybody can do something. Do you believe that? You young people believe that? You can do something. You may never preach a sermon. You may never lead a song. You may not even ever teach a, a, a Bible class in a formal setting. But that does not mean that you can't do something. Let me ask you this. Can you send a card to somebody? How about that? That first big surgery I had back in 06, I was flat on my back. Linda came home at 11.30. And the first thing she did was walk through the living room, went out the front door and went down to the mailbox, checked the mail, and she came back. You know what I, you know what I asked her? Did I get a card? I'm serious. That meant something to me. I mean, I'm lying there, and I'm a counter. I'm just telling you, I got all kind of psychological issues, okay? I did a, I mean, look, I did a doctorate, and then I went and did a master's in counseling. Hello? That tells you right now I got problems, right? And I learned that I was a counter. See, I already know you got those eight doodads on the back walls back there. I've already counted everything I can count in this building. Well, here I'm laying on my back. I've counted every knot hole I can find, you know, in the wood. I've counted this. I've counted that. I've been laying there all morning. I want to read a card. Can you send a card to somebody to lift their spirit? Can you make a phone call? Can you do that? I know you can. Our lives are controlled by a phone. Somebody told me that statistics indicate that Nobody is more than three feet away from their phone. I don't know if that's true or not. It's true for me, but anyway, can you do that? Can you take a meal to somebody who perhaps can't get out? Can you um, cut somebody's grass? My neighbor was out of town. He was out of town so long. His grass got pretty high, at least by my standard. And so I went to cut his yard. And I hear and my phone rings. I said, David, I see you're cutting my grass. I said, I thought you was in Ohio. He said, yeah, but I got a camera on my doorbell. I thought, for the love of Mike, I can't, you know, I can't escape it, right? Anyway, 
He said, I've already got that arranged. I said, well, they'll have a week off, I guess. But anyway, can you do something like that? Listen to me. When you do things like that, you're doing something for the Lord. See, you're serving. And they're going to witness your speech and witness your behavior. And you may have an incredible impact on a certain person. So everybody can do uh, something. Another thing is this. They believed that every person was a candidate for the gospel of Christ. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? Talk to me. Every creature, or as Ernestine would say, every creature, right? You know Ernestine on Andy Griffith? Okay, so if you don't get out much, that's okay. All right. But anyway, preach it to every creature. When I first started preaching in Mississippi, I'd go in the backyard and I had some beagle hounds and, and I, I preached to them and they'd start howling and I had, uh, there were squirrels and blue jays and so forth, but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about human beings created in the image of God. who are going to live with God or live with the devil. Those are the people we've got to preach to. And that means everybody. As the song says, red, yellow, black, or white. Is that right or wrong? Everybody is a candidate for the gospel. Taught by precept, taught by example. John chapter 4, the Bible begins by saying that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Well, it was not a geographical necessity. You know, most of the Orthodox Jews, what they would do is they'd cross the Jordan River, go over east in Perea, and then go up north, and then they'd pass through, you know, going up north past Samaria, and then they'd cross back over into Galilee. Not Jesus. He needed to go. You know know why he needed to do that? Because he knew he was going to talk to the Samaritan woman. And that made an impression on the disciples, didn't it? You know, they'd been in town trying to find something to eat, and they come back, and the Bible says it's the imperfect tense. They were marveling that he was talking to a woman. Everybody's a candidate for the gospel. And I'll leave you with one other thought. I have some others, but I'll just leave you with one final thought. If we're going to be successful in evangelism, we've got to maintain a positive attitude. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. If what? If you don't faint. Isn't that right? Romans 8.37, we're more than conquerors in God. More than conquerors. Isn't that encouraging? Don't be weary in well-doing. Maintain a positive attitude. Now, some of us, it's more difficult for us to have a positive attitude than it is for others. When I was doing that counseling class, uh, I had to take all these psychological tests, you know, and so forth as part of the class and probably because I'm a little crazy too, but anyway. So my teacher comes in and says, Dr. Life, I already had my PhD, said, so Dr. Life, you're melancholic, huh? I said, well, I guess. He says, well, that's what the test shows. Look it up. Sad. Depressed. Blue. 
And Peggy, I was kind of encouraged because I was born and raised in Mississippi and I've always loved the blues and I thought, now I know why. But what I'm saying is this, people like me, we don't need to hang around. Y'all hang on just for one minute. People like me don't need to hang around naysayers. You see, naysayers pulled me down. You know, the, you know the folks that say the world's going to come to... You know the people that were saying 40 years ago there's not going to be any more Social Security? <laughs> Hello? Naysayers. If, they, if, you're, if there are people like that that pull you down, don't hang around those people. You ever see that Bob Newhart um, little take entitled Stop It? You ever see that? Look it up sometimes. It's really funny. And so if there's some people that you're hanging around that pulled you, pull you down, stop it! Or my counseling approach to quote my wife, get over it! <laughs> but try to be positive as you can. And if it's hard for you like me, then find positive people. Find people that will make you laugh. Find people that will encourage you and make them your associates. Amen? Thank you all for letting me share this with you tonight. You've really made my evening by allowing me this possibility. And it was great to see Caleb when I was doing that meeting for him. Love that boy. He, um, you know, did a great job in class and still doing a great job. Thank you so very much. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.